Due to COVID-19, this episode was recorded via Zoom. We apologize for the lowered sound quality. Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we're joined by Taima Al-Jajouz, a lawyer specializing in human rights and international law. Taima is a member of the Bar of Quebec, a legal council in Syrian legislation based in Montreal. She has defended and helped dozens of women and children in Syrian and European courts, and was the first woman to defend political prisoners in Syria's Supreme State Security Court. Taima was also the first woman to be a board member of the Human Rights Organization of Syria in early 2001, and has represented many opposition leaders. In this episode, we discuss women's rights in Syria and the impact of the civil war, more specifically regarding the new family law and the role of Sharia in marriage contracts. Taima explains the complex issues that women face from both family and society, and highlights the importance of acknowledging women's dignity and recognition as a matter of human rights. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. We hope you enjoy the episode. So Taima, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm excited to talk to you and talk to you about the work you've been doing, particularly with regards to women in Syria. And so maybe you can begin a little bit by telling us a, a bit about your background. But first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And let me say thank you so much, Ellen, for all the professional support that you provided to me, I believe, since the year 2000. We are not too old, but it is since 2000. So thank you so much. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to be in this program. And this is a remarkable project indeed. I would like to introduce myself by saying I am a Syrian-Canadian citizen and I am a training lawyer. I've been practicing law since 1994 and my major focus was on women's rights and children's rights uh, in Syria and Middle East. Actually, it has been developed in different stages over the last 20 years and uh, mainly I've been discussing equality and uh, women's rights from a human rights perspective. Because if you want to build democracy in countries, then equality should be respected and respected in a way that no place for discrimination or bias. For this reason, I had the chance uh, to defend women in the Syrian courts. I conducted uh, many researches and I conducted also a book on children's rights in Syria under Sharia law. And in addition to that, right now I do have my my article. I have two articles per month and it is also about the women's rights. Uh, I am a feminist. And would love to see, I believe strongly in democracy and human rights. And I would love to see, you know, democracy in Middle East and uh, people uh, do enjoy it. In addition to that, I had my project before in Syria and it was about defending women's rights and also fighting violence because violence, as you know, would take several forms and uh, mainly I concentrated on legal violence and that made me discuss more and more uh, the family law, the Syrian legislation and where are the weak places or the weak articles in the Syrian legislation that would help 
bias and discrimination against women. I would humbly say it wasn't only the Syrian law. Actually, because of the social fabric of the Syrian society or the, the geography of Syria, I had the chance to defend women from Lebanon, from Jordan, from Gulf area, from Egypt. And because of the movement in and out Syria at that time before the year 2011. And that project actually was mainly to provide pro bono services to women and children and to defend them. Among the issues were child marriage, honor crime, polygamy, right to divorce, or right to, to marriage. You know, in general, I had a chance to be part of a human rights organization's uh, board member of a human rights organization of Syria, and I defended political prisoners in, in Syria, but that was under the martial law in Syria at that time. It was lifted in the year 2012, and previously I had the chance to defend them, the political prisoners. In addition to that, I have continued my work as a researcher, and I have conducted many researches in terms of women's rights and uh, ecology. Thank you, Tana. You've been in a really extensive background in career, and it's really great to be able to talk to you about these sets of issues. I'd like you to tell us a little bit more. You mentioned the issues of polygamy, of honor killings, and others. Can you tell us a little bit more about those in, in depth so that we can have a better understanding of the issues that do face women you know, in Syria and, and elsewhere in the Middle East? Okay, uh, this is a great question, actually. But if you may, I just would like to start with explaining something about, especially when it comes to polygamy, I would start with polygamy. But if you may, I would like to start with the definition of Sharia. What does it mean and why the polygamy is stated there in the family law in, in Syria? The term Sharia refers to a set Islamic religious law that governs aspects of day-to-day -day life for Muslims. Actually, it is a set of principles and guidelines to help people make important decisions in their lives, such as marriage, divorce, guardianship, etc. Also, there is some variation in how Sharia is, in, is interpreted, like the Syrian family law is based on Sharia. And the main uh, element of Syrian law was codified in the personal status code provided in the legislative degree in the year 1953, and the number of the decree is 59. While this code aims to apply to all Syrians, it makes exceptions for followers of the Druze, Christians, and Jewish faith with respect to marital uh, affairs which are regulated internally. And uh, since 1953, the personal status code has been amended only three times in 1975, 2003, and then in 2000. 19. And this last one was in response to challenges brought about by um, the civil war in Syria, which started in the year 2011. Actually, we can say that the personal status code has by and large survived until the present day. So now we come to the polygamy. And just before we move to that, I would like just to say that the provisions of the personal status code are derived mainly from the Hanafi school of thought, but also from non-Hanafi school as Shafi'i. Hanbali and Malki. So now what's about the polygamy? The polygamy, like this is what I've been talking about. There is bias and discrimination in the family law, in the Syrian family law. Like in one hand, the age of marriage is before 2011. It was uh, 17 years for girls and uh, 18 years for boys. Then it was raised to 18 
years for both in the latest amendment. Furthermore, we have two kinds of marriage contracts. The attitude, you know, like Muslims have what is known as the Sheikh book ceremony, and they register the marital contract in the Sharia court. Also, we have, on the other hand, customary marriages whereby a ceremony is held, but the marital contract is not registered in the respective religious court are not deemed legally valid under Syrian law. How can we relate all what has been said to polygamy? Right now, there is a new amendment uh, which uh, took place in the year 2019. That amendment said, like, women could reject or object on any, you know, women could state their condition or write down their conditions on the marriage contract. And polygamy is forbidden from now on. Also, this is fine, but polygamy hasn't been prevented due to the fact that we have two kinds of uh, marriage contract. Like, even if the law would say, like, okay, we should prevent this marriage, the family law, because it is based on Sharia law, would allow the customary uh, marriage. So in this case, according to the family court, the husband must provide a lawful justification to the court before he takes a second wife. This is in theory. But in a practice, there is polygamy. Women would suffer polygamy and men could have one wife, two wives, or sometimes four wives, you know. So in this case, like the bias and the discrimination in the law, and there is a lot in the Syrian family law, but there is paradox. In one hand, you would say the polygamy is not allowed anymore and the woman could object on that. On the other hand, you have two kinds of marriage so the men could have many, I wouldn't say all the men, that would be generalizing, you know, the issue. What I would like to say is some men would take the advantage of that and then go in and have the second wife or third wife or fourth wife relying on the customary marriage contract. So I just want to clarify for a second. So just to be clear, first you're saying that this applies to Muslims, but it doesn't apply to Christians and Jews who would have their sort of contractual, basically family law would be under their own communities. Is that the first thing I understand? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then for those who get married the first time, and this is where I'm a little bit confused. So basically polygamy is always illegal now in, in Syria or it's Ill, illegal, but then they get married the second or third or fourth time using customary law, which is one option. Or is it that women have the right to say that they don't want to have their husband take any other wives? As you mentioned, like it is illegal. And in addition to that, the woman could say like, I object on polygamy in her contract because uh, the family law after the recent amendment said after the recent change said the, uh, the wives or the woman could write down or set any conditions in the contract but in in general they could find a way by using the customary it is illegal to have more than one wife but it is a matter of fact based on sharia you know this is the paradox it is complicated like the roof of law this is illegal but it is under the roof of Sharia, it is legal. And when you go back to the family law, so it is based on Sharia, so it is allowed. You know, it is like circle. So this is why mm -hmm. I would say like, okay, this is bias and discrimination. And the vague words of the articles, the, the lack of explanation about the relation between Sharia and family law would made persons or people are confused. Like, okay, what we do, how can we do it? If he's a man and he would like to have a second wife, it's a piece of cake. 
because mm-hmm. he would rely on, on Sharia. So this is why I'm saying there is paradox. And the relation, again, between Sharia and between family law has made it more complicated for women. This is from the 2019 law? Yes, the okay. amendment from 2019. And the, the article, actually, the rule of Sharia, it's since ever. So, like, you cannot say why, because a sheikh who's, who's next to priest or his religious man would have the contract in the presence of two witnesses. And according to Sharia, this is very a true and perfect contract because there is sheikh, there are two witnesses, and there is a man and woman. So the basic elements of the contract is there. So there is no need to say, like, this is bad contract or uh, it is illegal contract. So in this case, I mean, the law has been in place from 2019. What was the reason for the amendment or what pushed for these amendments? Well, first of all, let me say, like, you know, since 1953, the personal status code has been amended only three times, you know, as I mentioned before. And this last one was in response to challenges brought uh, about by the civil war in Syria, which started in the year 2011. And, you know, by and large, the personal status law has survived until the present day. So the main reason for the amendment where was the civil war in Syria. To be precise about the reason, like why? Because so many women, as you know, we were Syrians at that time. Because of the civil war, many Syrian men disappeared or killed or left the country with no news. And women uh, or wives at that time, they didn't have any idea like where the husbands are, you know? So in this case, the need has been raised, like, we have to solve this problem. How? By having the amendment on the Article 109, which at that time, before the amendment said, like, you know what, it is okay for women, if the husband is absent, it's okay for the woman to stay or to wait for four years, and then raise the the file case in front of the court and asking for divorce. While the new amendment, which uh, happened in the year 2019, said there is no need for uh, this waiting period, like four years, we could just reduce that to one year. So the woman, instead of waiting for four years, she would come forward after one year to the court and file a court case and saying, my husband is absent and it has been one year that I didn't hear from him. And for this reason, I would like to have a divorce. Just one important point I would like to mention about this. This is a tricky article. This is so tricky amendment in a way that the woman, it is hard to say, but women, when they apply for divorce in this case and under the roof of the husband's absence if the husband would show up during the waiting period which is three months then she wouldn't divorce is not going to be valid because the husband could get her back actively or verbally and her consent is not considered you know so this is another you know like under the roof of this amendment there is a bias because maybe the woman has no will or consent to live with this husband. So why do you force her to get back to this relationship? So the kind of divorce which is revocable or irrevocable also play a major role in this kind of uh, of cases. So the reason, the main reason, I'm giving this example just to say, like, it took us a whole civil war to have amendments, but even when the amendments came, they came with bias and discrimination. 
That's a good point. Thank you. So it's been 2019 until 2021. Has there been any cases where women have come forward to challenge this issue of men not being allowed to take second or third wives and yet doing so under the religious law? Yes, you will find that. But also, we have to remember right now, like in official way, Syria didn't pass or didn't come out of the civil war, right? It's still there. The Northeast is something, of the region of Northeast of Syria having a new reality. In Idlib, there is a new reality. The center of Syria has a new reality. What I would like to say, like for all these reasons and for the variety of environments from Northeast to Northwest to South to Center, so women and also the hardship of the economic and social conditions and the cultural conditions actually would allow women to go forward and to file cases in the courts. And for some, it is so difficult because right now the, with the economic situations, with the pandemic, that wouldn't give the woman the space to come forward strongly and say, hey, this is my right and I would like to file a court case. Contrary to that, you know, that would make women back off in a very weak situation like if i would ask for divorce then who's gonna support me if she has no job or if she has lack of education so you have to analyze this you have to have women who have good education job based in the job market and then support by their families so that would allow them to come forward and ask for divorce or practice their rights as they are stated in the new amendments or in the family law uh, in general. So yes, some women are coming, but it's not that a huge percentage. In my personal opinion, I believe at some point the family law asserted the legal violence against women and asserted the weak positions of women in the society. So if they would come forward and ask for divorce, that would take from them long time because the process would take long, long time to get a verdict. Plus, the burden of evidences on them are doubled. A number of times I, I would mention, like, for the men, it is so easy to say or to divorce their wife only by oral repudiation. But for women, then she has to follow certain procedures when it comes to mukhala or to tafriq or to which um, if you would like, I'm going to explain what kind we have under the Syrian family law. If you look at the right to divorce in general, you will find four kinds of divorce in the Syrian family law. The first is the husband can divorce his wife, talaq, we call it talaq, which doesn't require court approval. The second, which is much less common, a wife can divorce her husband if her right to divorce has been included in the marriage contract. This is what we call it. This divorce also doesn't require the judge's approval, although it differs from the talaq in that the husband can reclaim his right to the marriage. And the courts play a role in, the, in this regard, in the divorce, I mean. The third one, either a wife, the third kind of divorce, I mean, either a wife or her husband can bring a case to the court seeking a judicial dissolution. Tafriq. We call it tafriq in Arabic, of the marriage. The last one, both spouses, the wife and the husband, they can also come together, having agreed on the terms of the divorce, mukhala, to seek the, court, the court's approval. So it is there. But in addition to that, under the roof of all these kinds of talaq, 
women cannot, you know, cannot just come forward to the court and say, I want to divorce my husband. She has to prove that. She has to uh, provide double uh, evidences. She has to uh, bring also witnesses. She has to follow certain procedures that would take years, sometimes 10 years and sometimes 15 years, you know, and I witnessed that. And many lawyers, uh, researchers and feminists witness that in the Syrian courts. Just really quickly to help us understand this. So when you're saying she needs to bring evidence before the court, is this evidence of adultery? Is this evidence of abuse? Or what kinds of what kinds of claims can a woman make that help to explain why she should be granted a divorce? Mainly it is the abuse. That was for abuse. This is what we say like when she's uh, coming forward and asking for divorce. It's about the Alat Ashikak means in, in Arabic, the abuse, or like they have so many differences and she cannot get along with him, so she want to divorce. So in this case, the, the reasons are varied. But in general, that would be so hard. She has to prove that by police reports, by medical reports, by witnesses, and it's up to the judges to consider this proofs or to consider this report. Plus, the reports themselves, if she would go to the police and ask to report abuse or violence against her, she wouldn't have the support socially and culturally. This is why so many women have this problem in presenting their evidences because there is no supportive environment would encourage them to go ahead and have a report. And this is pretty much related to their rules in the society. They are not the bread makers. Not many women would have good job opportunities. Not many women would easily say, okay, I don't need the custody of my children. They would stuck in the marriage contract because of their children, because of the lack of economic support or cultural support and social support. In general, there is a special rule for women, culturally and socially, you have to follow the best interest of your family, the best interest of your husband. And again, this is, by the way, it is just to be fair and to state what is going on on the ground. It is very much dependent on the situation of the woman. Does she have good education? Does she have good social circle? Does she have a good job? Is she ready to fight for her children and to divorce herself? So this is why the evidences or the proofs are going to be so difficult for women. But for men, it's, it's easy. Okay, just make the comparison here. Like a husband could come to his wife and say, you know what? You are talaq, you are divorced. For women, they have to go to the court to present their file, to present their evidences if they have any, and then to ask for talaq and to bring witnesses. And also, it is pretty much related to the judges. Because the judges would look at the woman from social and cultural angle. You are the wife. You are the mother. You are the one who has to preserve or protect the best interest of your family. They wouldn't look at her as a human being who has her own interest and her own life and the future. This is what I would like to say. So just to, again, to answer your question. The burden is too heavy on the woman's shoulders because she has to bring many witnesses. She has to provide certain reports that explain why is she asking for, for divorce. While for men, it is a piece of cake. In addition to that, if you go into the court, 
actually the sentence was I didn't like it at all in Sharia court or in family court back there in in in, in Damascus. If you go into the courtroom, you will find in all courtrooms a small board behind the judge, and it stated the following: Any woman would ask for divorce, she wouldn't enjoy paradise or heaven. You will be in hell because you ask for divorce as a woman. And this is absolutely a very clear bias against women. So why do you punish the woman and make it like it is divine punishment while the men could divorce their wives without being punished at the religious level? If you go through many details, you will find it. There, you'll find the bias and you will find that we didn't encourage the woman just to uh, to claim her right to have dignity and decency in her society. So, Tanya, another point that you made with regards to custody, right? You, you'd mentioned mm. that a woman wouldn't be willing to give up her children and you've talked a little bit about the bias. And I'd like you to describe that a little bit more. I think it's unusual in North America, at least. The tendency is to think that if there's a divorce, that the children, if they're going to be more with one or the other parent, they're more likely to be spending more time with the mother than with the father. So maybe you can help us to explain a little bit the the tendency towards custody. Yeah, actually, it was a huge uh, file back there in Syria, the custody issue. So before it was according, again, to the Hanafi school and according to family law, it was uh, the age of children or the age of custody, it was nine years for boys and 11 years for girls. And then the amendment happened in 2000s and they said, you know what, we're going to raise the age of custody and make it 18 years. That was the proposal at that time. And the teenagers, boys and girls, when they reached the age of 15, they would have the choice. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. What happened at that time, they raised the age of custody. So the girls and boys at the age 13 and 15, they would go with the father. And this is so different from North America, as you mentioned, in general and, you know, in Europe, because mostly the children would spend their time with their mother or they, if like, uh, sometimes they would have joint custody to divide the custody between them. This is so difficult file because that didn't provide the woman her right as a mother to enjoy her children's custody. In this case, if the father would decide to have the children at age 13 and age 15, the mother would only have the right to see her children only one time per week. So the age of custody is the age at which they get to choose custody, is that correct? No, the child wouldn't choose at that time. The child would be with the mother at that age, but the father would have would see the children. So it is like the, the situation would be changed because they are young. They would stay with their mother until the age 13 or 15, and the father has the right to see them. But guess what? This is uh, not only about seeing them, because all the time the father, according to the, because he's the guardian, he's the main guardian, so he would be the only one who would make decisions in favor of his children, whether it comes to health, to education, to travel. He's directing everything and he's managing everything. And the final decision is his decision. But the physical presence would be with the mother. And then he has the right to see his children one time per week. But then when they will reach the age of 13 and 15, they will move with the father and then physically will be with the father and the guardianship will continue because the father didn't lose anything. While the mother is shifted from the very early age from 
the very beginning of her childbirth from making any decisions in his favor. Like she can't sign any paper in his favor or she can't even take the decision to make him, to enroll him in a school or to take him to certain, like to surgery whatsoever, you know, or to travel with him. That would be another story. So what I want to say in terms of custody, this is according to the guardianship's conditions and according to the custody conditions, the mother doesn't have full rights as much as the father. There is always a, a stage for the father to be ahead, to make decisions, and to have full custody over their children. Thank you. That's helpful. I'm going to turn our attention for a moment. I mean, you've mentioned the, the importance of kind of cultural practices versus the law before. And I think that one of the things that there's a lot of discussion about and a lot of debate over is honor killings, which you'd mentioned up very early in the discussion today. Can you tell us a little bit more, more about how that's seen in the law and how it's practiced in, in practice? Okay, so recently they had amendments. We always have this gap between theory and practice. The, the honor crime has been practiced in Syria, especially in the countryside. And sometimes before 2011, some statistics and numbers mentioned that every year we have about around 5,000 victims. And unfortunately, those women who were killed were killed by members of their family. So the voices were raised like we have to prevent that. We have to end this article which allowed any member of the family from the father's side or from the mother's side, whether he is siblings, uh, one of the siblings or uh, the father or the uncle or the cousin, we have to prevent this crime. But at that time, that wasn't, the punishment was reduced in a sense like, okay, instead of having the sentence for 10 years or 20 years because you killed a person, then in practice, this is not uh, applied for one reason, because we have al and we have the public right and the private right. The private right, we have it in Syria that just to explain that because it's kind of complicated. Let's have an example. If a woman has been killed by her brother, or by her father. The father will be arrested and will be punished according to the law, right? Because this is a crime. Another member from the family could come forward because also they are representing the victim and they would say like, okay, we drop our right in this crime. We drop our right in this crime. That would mean that the father or the brother who committed this crime is burdened. And the family, not in favor of punishing him. In this case, when that would be happened in front of the, at the official side, like let's say in the court or in the police station, then the only thing is laying on the way is to be punished for six months in the prison because he committed a crime. You see, when they abolished that, last year they said there is uh, no honor crime anymore under the Syrian legislation, and uh, this is not an excuse not to implement the law. Contrary to that, the law should be implemented and you will be punished as a criminal who committed a crime and who killed a human being. This is, has no effect in practice. I respect that in theory, like it has been ended at the official level, but in a practice has no effect for one simple fact that the family itself would come forward and say, we drop our right in this crime. And that would pardon the criminal from being punished 
by the state or by the court. Just to interrupt for one second, because I want to make sure that I understand this. So it is still the case in Syria that you can, in a criminal case, when someone has been killed, that the family can come and say that they, they want to give up the right to prosecution? Exactly. Like, uh, we give up the right to prosecution and we forgive him and we don't to see him, you know, uh, punished or going to jail. That's a right, if I understand, that has also, it has other roles. So, for instance, somebody may have hit a child and, and killed the child. A family member of the child can come forward and give up the right as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, okay. this is why I'm saying, like, it is the public right and the private right. You have both of them in parallel ways under the roof of the Syrian legislation and the Syrian courts. So it is just give up your right and uh, saying I pardon the criminal. And that would be end of the story. So it seems to me that one of the lessons or one of the themes that we're talking about is this importance of essentially kind of education and having people recognize their rights, recognize the value of women and, and other ways in which you can move things forward, right? Because you know, when we talked about it, especially with regards to honor killings, but with some of the other issues as well, it's it's not so much that the problem is in the law as it is in the ways in which people want to implement or they want to sort of call upon the law. Actually, the law would play a major role in changing the mindset of the people. And yes, it would need lots of education, lots of raising awareness about the women and their rules in the society. It would need long years and campaigns. And this is so important right now because after 10 years of civil war, it is important to start the change. You know, it is important to make women regain their dignity and decency. What happened was uh, awful, especially under the roof of ISIS, what they did when they made Syria an open market for rape, for killing, when they pushed women into the Middle Ages, that was so awful. And also, I believe that having democracy and respect for human rights would help a lot in making women having their dignity back, having decency. It is long, long-term journey, but it's good to start with a step. Right now, we don't know. We have the United Nations resolution. We have the Constitutional Committee to work on that. We have all these factors. And actually, that would bring me also to, to the rule of law in filling the gaps and pushing women's rights forward. Because if you look at the Syrian constitution, you, see, you will see that they respect the equality principle, right? And we know that one of the main pillars of democracy is equality. While when you try to view the equality under the roof of the different branches of laws, you will find, for example, the, the family law. And the family law merely has so many spots where discrimination is so clear where bias is so clear uh, against women, not only that, that in a way or another would encourage the violence against women. So, yes, I totally agree with you. It's, it is about education. It is about giving the woman's opportunity. It is about pushing women to be vocal about their rights and making the society aware of the women's rules in the society and also having women as decision makers in the society itself. 
So that would help women to present their cases perfectly and clearly, and that would help the woman to defend their rights in a perfect way. That doesn't mean that men have no role. Men are playing a major role in our society, and they are equally have the responsibility to end the violence in society, violence against women, and also to make them enjoy human rights. Actually, I know so many men whom they are feminists, and defending women's rights in perfect and amazing way. But what we need is to work collectively on the ground and make it common culture for women to understand this is your right, to make the society understand like this is not against religion, this is not against specific religious sect. This is about dignity, about decency, about having civil laws replacing religious laws. And you know what? We have the example right now. I don't hide the secret when I say I love the experience in Tunisia. Because in Tunisia, they stood up and they said, you know what? This is not against religion. You have the option, whatever the outcomes of that debate. But it is good to try and it is good to step. So what we need is to raise the issue of women, to educate them, but at the same time, to make it very clear, not to manipulate emotionally the people, by saying this is against the religion, especially under the roof of civil war, where spirituality is the pillar for so many people. Thank you. And and you've actually been working on these issues for decades now and done an amazing job. But, so thank you for both taking time and describing and discussing this with us, but also for all of the work that you've done. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I really hope not only for Syria, Syrian children and Syrian women, peace and uh, prosperity. I hope that for all human beings around the world, and you are doing a great job. I've been looking at the interviews, previous interviews, and it is amazing, like from different regions, different topics. So thank you for your work. It has been a pleasure being with you. Thank you.